So just a real quick review, you know, 30,000 foot view of where we've been in the book of Romans so far. First seven verses, Paul just introduces himself. Okay. Introduces himself to the Romans. He gets distracted by the gospel. He just kind of bursts forth and prays over the gospel. And then he sends his greetings to this church uh, that had been founded by somebody other than him. And then we move into the next uh, section, eight through 15, which we covered last week. And we find out that Paul had been wanting to get there in person. Paul had been wanting to see them. He had been hindered up to that point of time. And that's really where we've been so far in the book of Romans. And so this morning, what we're going to look at real simply, if I can kind of give you the forest, like I said last week, and then we'll dive into the trees a little bit. The forest is this man has no righteousness. God provides righteousness in the gospel and you and I need it. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It's, it's the theme of the entire book of Romans. We're going to find encapsulated here in verses 16 and 17. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things we're going to look at, and, and Lucas read it earlier, and we see in verse 16 is that very first phrase, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, that's a popular verse, isn't it? And we, we hear that a lot. In fact, it's probably one of the most popular verses in Christianity. And we think about what that means to be ashamed of the gospel or to not be ashamed. Well, before we look at what it means and what it doesn't mean, I want to tell you what I don't think it means. I don't think it, it means that you, you're ever afraid to share the gospel or that you have some fear associated with how people respond when you share the gospel. Now, why do I believe that? Well, Paul is going to tell us that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But you know that Paul was not some super Christian in the sense of what we think of a super Christian. And and what I mean by that is he wasn't perfect. Do you know that the apostle Paul was just like you and me in many ways? That he had fears, that he had, if you want to call it insecurities. We see this through the Bible. He didn't try to hide it. From us, yet, yet many times when we look back and we look over history, we think, oh, the great apostle Paul, he's perfect. He would never miss an opportunity. He would always share the gospel. He's not afraid of anything. He was bold. He was courageous. He would just go into a crowd and just start letting it rip. And here I am. I can't even share the gospel with, with an old lady living next door who's my neighbor who wouldn't hurt me if I shared the gospel. And yet we kind of think, well, Paul would never do that. You know, let me just, before we go into Romans, let me show you something in Acts chapter 18, if I could. This is Paul in Corinth, which, you know, Corinth had a reputation. It wasn't a positive one. (laughs) Very worldly city in that day. Very culturally just worldly. Um, You know, we might, in terms of what we might liken it to in our culture, we might say it's like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So he's in Corinth and we see that in, in verse four, it says this, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Sounds good so far being bold, teaching the word of God. But you know that Paul's ministry in synagogues kind of came in two parts. One part, he would go to their scriptures, the old Testament scriptures, and he would show them from the old Testament scriptures that their prophesied Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again. That was actually the safe part of the message because he could show them from the scriptures that their Messiah had to do that. And they'd say, oh, yeah, you're right. The dangerous part, the fear part was when he said, you know who that Messiah is? Jesus of Nazareth. And that is when all whatever broke loose. Either people got excited 
and put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, or they rejected Paul and began to violently oppose him. And notice in verse 5, it's a, it's a subtle comment, and we pick up, I think, even more um, when we get to verse 9. But look at verse 5. He was by himself at this point in time. But in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He needed encouragement from his friends to be bold, to get over his fear. Now, why don't we say what Paul was fearful? We'll go down to verse 9. What does Jesus say to Paul? Jesus actually has to appear to Paul in the night by a vision to encourage him to continue. And he says this to Paul, don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Now, why did Jesus say that to Paul? Probably because he was fearful and worried that he might get attacked in that city. And so when Paul goes into verse 16 and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It doesn't mean that he didn't still deal with fears like you and I do when we have opportunities to share the gospel. But it means something different. And and what we're going to see and what we got to understand is that there's four fours in this passage. Four fours. And to confuse you more, one four explains the why and three fours explains what the first four is there for. How's that? Okay. Now that you've got the message, we can go home. Four fours. Okay. Let's just look at them really quickly and then let's just kind of work through them. Verse 16, the very first part of verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Middle part of verse 16, for it is the power of God to salvation. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed in verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so what we're going to see is the reason Paul is not ashamed is there are concrete reasons why you and I should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's concrete reasons. He's going to give us three of them. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so let's just dive in to verse 16 this morning. He says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, why is Paul not ashamed for the gospel of Christ? Where does this first four come from or what's it referencing to? Well, when you look back in verse 14, he says that he's a debtor to both Greeks and Gentiles and, and barbarians and to unwise and unwise. And then in verse 15, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome. Why is he ready to do those things? Why is he a debtor? Because verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's why he wants to get there. That's why he feels he's indebted. That's why he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's the reason that he says those things in verses 14 and 15. Now, this word in shame, it's interesting. You make a note of it because it's not your typical Greek word for ashamed because he throws an additional preposition on the front. Now, you do that in Greek when you want to intensify something, when you want to really, really say something. And he throws it on the front of this word. The word itself means to be ashamed or embarrassed of someone or something. And Paul says, I am very much not ashamed. <laughs> I'm really, really not ashamed of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Remember, the gospel is about a person and about that person's work. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and the fact that he died for our sins and rose again. And Paul says, I'm very much not ashamed of that message, of that 
person. Now, it has nothing to do necessarily with fear, although fear could motivate being ashamed. But in this case, I think it's distinct because he's going to give reasons why you and I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He's going to give us three reasons as indicated by the other three fours as we continually move on. You know, what's additionally interesting about this word, it's a, it's a continual tense verb. In other words, he presently and continuously remains unashamed of the gospel. And the reason we're going to see is he's persuaded. He's convinced of something as it relates to the gospel. He's very convinced about something. He's fully persuaded. And just like uh, for many of us, as we walk out and we see the sky is blue, I'm convinced it's blue. Why? Because it's, because it's blue. (laughs) It's real simple. It's blue. I'm convinced. I don't need to defend that. I don't need to be fearful. You may not like the fact that I say it's blue. In fact, I've had people tell me, well, you know, actually it's not blue. It's, you know, they gave me the scientific reason. I don't, it's blue. It's blue. It's a, that's what we see. And so in terms of being ashamed, Paul is going to kind of approach the gospel that way. In fact, we know over time that Paul faced a ton of opposition with the gospel. In fact, to, to the, to the detriment of his life, he was stoned in one city. He's been beaten. Uh, many times we kind of read through his accounts. He was in prison. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why Paul could be ashamed of the gospel. But, you know, he says that he's unashamed of the gospel and he's going to give us these three, four. So why is he not ashamed of the gospel? What we're going to see in verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel because of what it is. What it what it is presently. Okay, what the gospel is. We're also going to see he's not ashamed of the gospel because of what it provides. And then finally, we're going to see that he's not ashamed of the gospel because of what it, that's supposed to be an it, what it prevents. So we're going to see this morning that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because of what it is, because of what it provides, and because of what it prevents. And what we're going to not see, which is so typical in our day when we look at this verse, is he is not going to say that his unashamedness comes because someone has put him on a guilt trip for not sharing the gospel with somebody. You know, many times that's exactly how our evangelism happens. We attend an evangelism seminar and we start feeling guilty and we have this guilt trip. That is not the motivation to be unashamed of the gospel. You're going to see that Paul's motivation is going to be based on what it is. There's, there's no other way to be saved. That's the gist. It's, it's the power of God and the salvation. See, that's why he's unashamed because it is what it is. As many athletes say in our day, talking about different things, but the gospel is what it is and it will remain what it is all the time. And that is, it's the power of God unto salvation. And that's what he's about to tell us in verse 16. And so we see in verse 16, That the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, and I like what um, I like what a commentator said. You know, first of all, this word is is also present tense. It is and it remains true that the gospel is the power of God. And I like what he says. If you if you notice this, as you read it in the text, notice this. And this is what the commentator said. He says he does not say, speaking of Paul, that the, the gospel contains power. He does not say that it's powerful. He does not say that it has power or that it exerts power. He doesn't say any of those things. He says the gospel is, is the power of God to salvation. Now, most people understand the word is. I know some, some of our politicians sometimes need help with that definition. But most of us know what the word is, 
means. That means right now, presently, it's the power of God into salvation and it remains the power of God into salvation. This is why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel remains the only way by which somebody can be saved. And remember, the gospel centers in a person and that person's work. Don't ever forget that the gospel is not about you walking an aisle in a church, you going forward at a crusade, you raising your hand, you praying a prayer, you asking Jesus in your heart. The gospel is about a person, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again 2000 years ago on a day in human history. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Trust me, there's no good news about you. The the bad news concerns you and I. The good news concerns the Savior, the one who died for us and rose again. And so we celebrate him here on Christmas. Now, this phrase, power of God, it's an interesting word. Uh, You know, the Greek word is dunamis. You'll hear a lot of people say, well, that's where we get our English word dynamite. I think that's true, but the, but it's not like we're exploding people, right? We're not blowing people up. The, the point of this word is, is that it's to be able, to be capable. Um, and it stresses, here's the, here's the uniqueness of this word, I think. It stresses not only the ability to do something, but the actual intrinsic power to get it done. Okay? So if you want to look at the power of God, you can look at it this way. This is how God gets salvation done. This is how he, as you know, we all say in the South, get her done, right? Get, get it done. Get this salvation done. Get it accomplished. Forgiveness of sins taken care of. Death penalty taken care of. Righteousness to our account. God gets it done. He does it through the gospel. This is the power of God to salvation. This is why Paul remains unashamed. And you know, as we look at the gospel, it's the only thing, only, only, only thing that can take care of the two problems that you and I face. We have a death penalty that we cannot pay and we need a righteousness equal to God's and we cannot achieve that. And so the message of the Bible is quit trying, quit trying to do good works, quit trying to be religious, quit trying to be better and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, because that's the only way that you can be, have a righteousness equal to God's. And that's what we're about to look at here as we get into verse 17. But before we do, we see a very key phrase in verse 16. And so he's, let's read back through it again. It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who does what? There's a response involved to the finished work of Christ. And it's simply believe for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That means anybody in the world can be saved if they'll stop trying to be good. Stop trying to be religious. Stop trying to earn their way to heaven. And they'll trust in the, in the one who died for them and rose again. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is how God has chosen to save people. And so he does it through believing man's response. Now we know that the gospel is a finished work, nothing left to add to it. But you and I must personally receive this free gift by putting our faith in the finished work of Christ. That is Man's response. If everything is done, the only thing left is Jesus says in John three, as a serpent on the pole was lifted up in the wilderness, so must I be lifted up. And what did they have to do to be saved from the venomous snakes out in the wilderness, the nation of Israel? They had to look at God's provision. 
That's what faith is. It's a looking away from yourself, taking your eyes off of your hands, off of your feet, off of your heart, and putting it on the one who came to die for you, to pay the penalty for you. And that's what we're looking at here in man's response here in Romans 1.16. Notice really clearly, read it in your own Bible, there's no other requirements to be saved. Many people like to add things to simple faith in Christ, but there's no other requirements, no other restrictions. Read it again in verse 16. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who simply believes. That's the message. That's the response we need. And you say, wow, that sounds like, that sounds like a free gift. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's what the Bible calls salvation. It's a free gift. It's not something you work for or earn, or strive to obtain, or hope for. God has presented it to you just like this. Just like there's going to be tons of these under the Christmas tree coming up here in a few weeks. Salvation's a free gift. Salvation is a completely free gift, paid for by Jesus Christ, offered to whosoever will believe. And that's the message here that we see in Romans 16. And so rather than trusting our own works or our own efforts to obtain salvation... The Bible implores us to stop working. Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work, but believes. Stop working and trust in the one who died for you and rose again. You know, I like um, many people, you know, in terms of over the years that I've talked to, in terms of my Christianity, have said, you know, Jesus is, Jesus is just a crutch for you. You're, Jesus is just a crutch. You're just leaning on him. You, that's because you don't want to earn it yourself. And you just want the easy way out. And you just want easy believism. And I say, you know what? You're, you're wrong. Jesus is not a crutch. In fact, Jesus is my stretcher. Because you know what a crutch implies? That I'm kind of doing a little bit of it, right? I'm kind of leaning a little bit my weight. Crutch is just kind of helping me where I can't do it myself. No, I'm, I'm collapsing. I'm collapsed. On the work of Christ. In fact, if I get to heaven and God says, why should I let you into heaven? And I'm going to say, it's because of that man seated at your right hand who died for me and rose again. And if that's not good enough, God, I've got no chance. See, I'm totally depending on the work of Christ. That, that is the message of the gospel. You quit resting on your crutch and Jesus. Throw your crutch away and lean on the stretcher that is Jesus Christ. The one who died for you, did for you what you could not do. For yourself, And that is man's response as I see it there in Romans 1.16. And then uh, Paul goes on to say here for the Jew first and also uh, to, for the Greek. And, you know, what's interesting about that is, um, first of all, I, I think in terms of studying the book of Romans, we pick up a subtle reference. If you were here weeks ago and we did an introduction to the book, you remember that one of the reasons I believe Paul wrote this epistle was because of a subtle anti-Semitism or Jew-Gentile tension within the church. I think we pick it up a little bit here in this verse, although I don't think that's the main point of this verse. But you see, again, he's kind of hitting that, that potential tension there. Um, but I think the main point of this verse is simply this, that to the Jew in their Jewish scriptures was promised the Messiah. And through the lineage of, uh, of lineage of Abraham, his, his physical descendancy would come. And so we find that in Genesis 3.15, all the way back at the fall, that God was going to send a promised deliverer to take care of the sin problem. And then we see in Genesis 12.1-3 that he was going to send that deliverer through the line of Abraham. And then that seed would be a blessing to all nations. And that's where the Gentiles come in. He was a, a promise of a savior, not only to 
the Jews, but he was also a promise of a savior for the Gentiles. Uh, if you want to jot a cross reference verse down for this point, you can jot down uh, Galatians 3, 8, where Paul actually says that God preached the gospel through Abraham. And he's referencing this verse in Genesis 12, one through three, that, that his seed would be a blessing or that all of the world would be blessed through his seed. And so we see there in, at the end of verse 16, that salvation is available to all people, Jew, Gentile. It's not just reserved for the Jew who had the teachings of the old Testament. It's available to everybody. And um, everybody in this room, that's not a Jew should say glory. Hallelujah. Because at some point you were excluded from those promises. You had to become a Jew in order to be made right with the God of the universe. And now God has torn the veil, both literally at the death of Christ and figuratively and says, whosoever will can come, whosoever will can put their faith in my son and I'll save them Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. There's no ethnic distinctions as it relates to eternal salvation. And so Paul's not ashamed of the gospel for what it is. We saw that in verse 16. It is the power of God to salvation. What we're going to see in verse 17 is we're going to see that Paul is unashamed of the gospel for what it provides. What does the gospel provide for us? Well, we're going to see in verse 17 that the gospel is where God provides righteousness. This great need that we have. Verse 17, for in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Notice he says in it again, just kind of going back to the text. What's he talking about in it? He's talking about the gospel in it. The gospel, God's righteousness is presently and continually being revealed. Do you know that you and I have a righteousness problem? You know, for some people, it doesn't take much to convince because those people are honest with themselves. They, they know not only the things that they do that are wrong, they not only know the things that they think that are wrong, but they also know sometimes that they feel things that are wrong. There's, there's all sorts of areas in our life that we see that we're unrighteousness. We, where we have unrighteousness, that we are unrighteous. But the gospel presents a manner by which you and I can be made righteous in the eyes of the God of the universe, the one who will judge us one day according to his standards. See, that's the beauty of this gospel. See, and, and what I love about this word revealed is it means uncovered. So God's not trying to hide the way to heaven. You know, you don't have to climb up the mountain of uh, Mount Everest on your knees to go to heaven, to hope to find out how you can get there. You don't have to crawl across the country of Mexico to a big cathedral. You don't have to camp out at the Vatican in Rome. You don't have to spend all your days in front of a mosque to figure out whether or not you're good enough to go to heaven. The God of the universe is trying to make it easy for you. He wants to reveal it to you. He wants to uncover it for you. He's not trying to hide this, make it difficult. That's exactly what we see here in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's, it's that word uncovered. And we see that he is purposely revealing it. He's purposely removing a veil, purposely uncovering it, purposely exposing to open view so that everyone who hears the message and responds by faith can be saved. He's not trying to make it difficult. The difficult way to get to heaven, which never results in success, is if you try to work for it the rest of your life. 
That's an impossible task because no matter how hard you work, you can never be good enough. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, the perfect son of God, took your place. The righteousness that you needed, you have in him the moment you put your faith in him. That's what the gospel reveals. And so it's a beautiful message. This is why Paul's unashamed because he's, there's no other well you can go to to get this. There's no other place you can go to. There's no other method. There's no other work. There's no other opportunity that you could ever have to get what God is offering in the gospel. This is why Paul's unashamed. I mean, the sky's blue. The gospel provides righteousness. That's as simple as that. And then he says this from faith to faith. You see that in verse 17 for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And what I love about this phrase is it shows that the gospels uh, is God's plan for making us righteous from start to finish. Okay. Not only does he want to provide you a righteous standing before him, but he also, once that happens, wants to show you and give you the tools and the resources to live a righteous life right here on earth. And not only that, but in the gospel, he's always, he's already made a provision for you to have a righteous eternal future as well called glorification. I mean, this is just the beauty of God. He doesn't do things half baked. He doesn't start a project that he doesn't finish. He doesn't think of all the potential contingencies. He puts it all together in a complete offering called salvation. And it's all a gift. And so when we look at righteousness, it's from faith to faith, from start to finish, You get saved by faith. You are being saved daily by faith. And in the future, you will be saved by faith. You're saved from the penalty of sin. You are saved daily from the power of sin. And you will be saved from the very presence of sin. And God took care of all of that in the gospel. And so it's a beautiful thing as we look about it. You know, the gospel not only takes care of our sin penalty, which is largely what we think of when we think of salvation, is that we won't go to hell. That's sin's penalty. He does save us from sin's penalty, but we also see that because Jesus died in our place, he provides for us our other greatest need, which is righteousness. You know, and this is where every religion in the world fails. This is why Paul is unashamed. There's no other well, there's no other solution to that right there. You need a righteousness that's equal to God's. Go find a religion that can provide that other than Christianity. Nobody even talks about it because everyone thinks you can be good enough to get to heaven as if, as if the God of the universe is going to grade on a curve. He's going to, he's going to take his righteous standard and say, oh yeah, well, everyone failed. So my top score is a 30. So I'm going to make them a hundred and then I'll bump everybody else up. Now I loved having college professors like that in college. That was awesome. Let's get my test. It's 30. And the next thing I know, it's like, he puts plus 75 up there. And I'm like, wow, I got 105 on that. And I really got a 30. See, God doesn't grade on a curve though. God grades according to his purchase standard. And so are his perfect standard. And so when we look at our need for righteousness, no other religion can provide that. No other belief system provides that you're on your own, buddy. You better, you better sharpen up, you know, tighten up that tie. Button that suit, make that bed. You know, quarter better bounce off that bed when you're done making it too. You know, that's, that's what religion teaches. The gospel doesn't teach that. See, in the gospel, we have a righteousness revealed 
by God from faith to faith. God took care of it all for you. Will you believe him? Are you convinced that he did it? Will you simply receive his gift by putting your faith in his son? If you do, you've got it all. You've got everything you need. We see that by identifying us with Jesus Christ, placing us in him. This is, uh, we gather this from other scripture passages. We stand, we now stand before God in the very righteousness of Christ. That's the beauty. You know, we see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. In fact, notice, notice this. I, it, I was looking at this the other day, and this is, a, again, another very familiar verse to us. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he, speaking of God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. You might say he, he became our sin offering. That's probably a, a better way to say that or a, a clear way to say that. Who, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, many times we think in terms of, well, when you put your faith in, in Christ, God is going to credit righteousness to your account or he's going to give you righteousness. You know what I see in that verse? I see something much better than that. And what I see is this. Read it with me again. You have become the righteousness of God in him. You see, instead of, instead of God giving you Jesus' right, as if Jesus is over here and he grants you his righteousness over here, he's taken you and because you're in Christ, you are the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's even stronger than this concept of giving or crediting righteousness. It's stronger because is Jesus Christ ever going to be found unrighteous in God's sight? No. How do we know? Because God raised him from the dead. He's seated at the right hand. He's been restored, if you will, to his former glory. And he's coming back again to establish his kingdom. And he's coming back for you, dear, dear saint, to meet him in the air at the rapture. He will never be found unrighteous in God's sight. And you know what? God said, you're in there. In fact, it's even better because you can see the paper there. Colossians says, you are hidden with Christ in God. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. And that's how you can know that your righteousness is not just some fading thing, something you have to maintain, something you got to keep up, like an oil change on your car or something. Once you put your faith in Christ, you have a position of unchanging righteousness. And it's so, it's so strong because God puts you in the very righteous one who you trusted in for your salvation. And then we see... This position is secure because God is the one who placed us in Christ. You didn't jump into Christ. You didn't claw your way into Christ. God puts you in Christ. First Corinthians 1 30. It's of his doing that he puts you in Christ. See, you've got a position that many times, and it's just typically called positional truth, positional sanctification. You've got a position that is unchanging, regardless of how you act on a daily basis. And that, that should be the greatest comfort to our eternal security that exists. God has placed you in Christ. That is an unchanging position. You are the righteousness of God in him. And it all comes through the gospel. It all comes through the gospel. However, the good news of the gospel doesn't it in there. Um, in fact, let me get back to Romans one, because he goes on to say the last phrase in verse 17, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I kind of mentioned this earlier, but, you know, in addition to the first tense of our salvation, if you were here for a few weeks ago, we talked about the three tenses of our salvation. 
theologically known as justification, sanctification, glorification. But specifically looking at the word salvation, we looked at, at each one of those phases. What are you saved from? Well, in justification, you're saved from the penalty of sin. Penalty of sin was death, eternity in hell. Christ paid that penalty for you. And you receive the benefit. You're declared righteous. That's what justification means. The moment you put your faith in Christ. And then you've got the second tense of our salvation called sanctification. What are you saved from in sanctification? Well, you're saved from the very power of sin in your daily life. Do you know that as a Christian, you don't have to be dominated by sin? You know, the the sad thing about many Christians and myself included is we can buy into this notion that domination by sin is just a daily occurrence. We just got to accept it. We just got to put up with it. Just like some of the, you know, some of these quirks in our personality. You ever heard someone says, well, that's just the way I am. I've been that way for six years and I ain't changing. Don't, Don't approach your Christian life that way. I've been dominated by that sin for six years. That's just how I am. And I ain't changing. Well, you're missing out on a salvation that God wants to provide for you. And it's not salvation from hell. That was taken care of when Christ paid the penalty for your sins and you put your faith in him. But you're missing out on this daily opportunity to walk with the Lord, to be delivered from the power of sin in your daily life. And then we've got a third aspect of our salvation. God completes the deal. God finishes what he started. And one day you will be completely saved or delivered from sin's presence when you get your glorified body. And you know, it's just like Christmas. And I brought it out. I've, I've upgraded my gift uh, illustration from the last time. This is a cool gift, isn't it? Whoa. I didn't know. I, I didn't, wasn't supposed to turn it upside down. This is a cool gift. You know, what's really cool, especially kids. You know, what's really cool about Christmas sometimes is sometimes you go to open your gift. And you know what you realize? Man, there's more gifts in here. <laughs> it's not just one. You know, and we look at this, the three tenses of salvation, justification, being saved from the penalty of sin. We look at sanctification, being saved from the power of sin. And then we look at glorification, being saved from the very presence of sin. And so we, we see really three aspects of one gift, salvation being the gift we receive by faith. But three aspects, as you get in, it's kind of like an infomercial, right? But wait, there's more, <laughs> you know, those infomercials. And so salvation's kind of like that. But wait, there's more. It's not just a ticket to heaven, but it's actually salvation. It's an abundant life now. And it's a future where you're not going to deal with sin anymore. Glory, hallelujah. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day where I'm not struggling or wrestling in my thinking with sin. But, you know, as we go back to, to Romans here. Look at verse 17. And I've kind of said some of these things already, so I'm going to fast forward. Okay. So look at verse 17. It says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so what is he talking about there? Well, I want you to notice something that he doesn't say. It's, he doesn't say there that the unjust shall be saved by faith. That's true. He just said that in verse 16, by the way. The unjust shall be saved by faith. That's verse 16. What's he saying in verse 17? He's saying the ones who are already justified, the ones who have already put their faith in Christ, are saved by faith, or they shall live by faith. What does that mean? Well, we're talking about sanctification. 
We're talking about deliverance from the power of sin. We're talking about you get saved at a moment in time when you transfer your trust into whatever else you're trusting in to the finished work of Christ. You're, the penalty of sin has been paid for you. You are righteousness of Christ in or righteousness of God in Christ. He puts you in Christ. But then from that point forward, do you just go out and live any way you want to, or do you just go out cranking it out in your own strength? Or do you continue to moment by moment, day by day, walk in dependence upon the spirit of God to produce the life of Christ in you? Yes. It's answer B (laughs) it's answer B the just shall live by faith. This is a sanctification verse right here. You and I are to live by faith. And I said this a a week or two ago when we were in uh, the first section, but so many times we get the cart before the horse and we want to talk about obedience, obedience, obedience. And we need to be talking about faith, 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 and then obedience springs from faith. Obedience, acceptable obedience springs from faith. So we see that in verse 17. Now we go to verse 18. And we, fi- we finally see this, this third reason that Paul's unashamed of the gospel. The first reason, what the gospel is. It's the power of God to salvation. Second reason, what the gospel provides. It provides a righteousness that you could not obtain or maintain or attain on your own. And then verse 18, we're going to see that the gospel prevents something happening to you. The gospel prevents. This is why Paul is unashamed of this. And so we see something else That's uncovered. We saw in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is revealed or uncovered here in verse 18. As we start um, really into a new section, which we'll pick up again next week, he says this for the wrath of God is revealed or uncovered from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what is the gospel prevent? Why is Paul not ashamed? It prevents you and I from facing the wrath of God. So this is why Paul's not ashamed. It's not because he needs some guilt trip to kind of build up his courage to, to say something. He's unashamed of the person and work of Christ because he knows it's the only way you and I can avoid the wrath of God on judgment day. He knows it. It's true. There's no other provision for all of these issues that we have sins, penalty, and a lack of righteousness. And so he sees that the wrath of God, or he he communicates that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So whereas God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, God's wrath um, is revealed against sinful man. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 18. Just as God is full and complete in his provision, For us and for salvation, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, does your version say all or some? All. (laughs) This means that you're not dealing with your mom and dad when it comes to judgment. Ever gotten away with something mom and dad never found out about? Okay, I'm the only one. (laughs) Whoa, man. That's, that's embarrassing. Um, but, but the point is this, you get away with stuff. I was getting away with, I shouldn't even admit this again. You guys are going to think I'm the biggest speeder in the world. But anyways, uh, just full confession. I got away with speeding the other day. I wasn't, I, I, I mean, going down the road, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to break the law. I just happened to look up at my odometer and I was going about 15 over on the freeway. 
Now, everyone else on the freeway was hanging right in there with me. I understand. But, but I got away with breaking the law. And what this is saying is that nobody's going to get away with anything at the judgment seat of Christ. Or at the, at the great white throne judgment of Christ. No one's going to get away with anything. All of it is going to be judged. All. That means actions, thoughts, feelings, heart, everything is going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. No one will escape. You see why Paul's unashamed of the gospel? This is your only chance. This is my only chance. This is my only ticket to avoid this judgment because when God judges, it's not going to be on a curve. He's going to have the the answer key right next to the test and what's wrong is wrong, period. That's what's going to happen that day. And you, you just see it there in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, we want to also look at this uh, verb tense here is present tense. We'll, t- we'll talk about that a little bit more, but it's notice it is revealed right now. There, there's a, there's a point in time where at the future, it's going to be revealed. He's going to judge us or, or judge uh, sinners at the great white throne judgment. But there's also kind of an indication that he's pouring out his wrath right now, even to a lesser degree. Now, what do I mean by that? He's, he's patient with us. You know that if God executed his judgment, the way that he will one day at the great white throne, that every time somebody sinned, boom, they'd be wiped out right at that moment. I mean, he even do that with Adam, right? Spiritual death started at the moment, but he let Adam live uh, another 900 years. But you know, if God actually executed his wrath, the, the way that it, the, the way that he could, that the moment you sinned, you'd be done. None of us would get out of toddlerhood. We, we'd, we'd be, we'd be done. And so we see that he's pouring it out in a small degree right now, but he's going to execute it fully. You know, we also know that um, the Bible teaches us is that the reason you don't have to face his wrath, if you put your faith in Christ, is because he poured it out on Jesus for you. He poured out his wrath on Jesus while he was on the cross. See, that's, again, the beautiful message of the gospel. This is why in the gospel, you don't have to be ashamed because God in, in his work through Jesus Christ prevented you from having to face his wrath. Again, there's no other religion that provides this. It's you're left on your own. Figure it out. Get good. Get right. Get straight. That's the that's the message of religion. The gospel, the message is Jesus Christ is right. Jesus Christ is good. Jesus Christ is straight. He did everything on the cross. Put your faith in him. And so we see that um, even in this wrath. Now, uh, the words ungodliness, just by definition. So as we look um, at what this means, notice the order first. It's, it's first an offense against God. This, t- this word typically uh, refers to lack of reverence for God or just an outright rejection of spiritual things. And then we see unrighteousness, which really refers more to injustice toward men. And so you see the order. First, it starts with offending a holy God. And then, and then it carries out with offending Man or mankind. And so God is going to pour out his wrath against all of this. Whatever that looks like, whatever form that takes, nothing will be missed on judgment day. And so together, these two words just show us humanity's failure to love God and other people as we should. Now, what we're going to see over the course of the next three chapters is Paul is going to get down and dirty with details as to humanity's failure. Because there's still people that would hear this message and go, well, 
but I'm a good person. I'm still a good person or my grandmother was a good person or my, my mother was a saint. My father was this, my brother was this, my sister was this, my whatever. And they would argue this point. Well, yeah, they're failed. They're not perfect, but they're still a good person. Paul's goal over the next three chapters is to change that thinking and to show us that no matter what category you fall in, if you are an immoral sinner, if you're a moral sinner or a religious sinner, you still don't measure up. You still don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. And so Paul is going to show in great detail, almost painful detail, how we're all a bunch of failures. So as a friend of mine used to say, you know, raise your glasses and drink a, from the cup of failure, all of us. Because that's exactly what the next three chapters are designed to do. It's going to be a little uncomfortable for the most part. Now notice this, one, one final thing in verse 18. He, he's going to reveal, uh, his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now notice this, this next phrase, and we're going to really build off of this next week in the, in the week after. Who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's an interesting word. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what it means? It means to, to hold it down. And I was looking for a picture and I, I couldn't find it on the internet, but Anyone ever have a, a big brother, a big sister, um, just hold you down by sitting on top of you and you couldn't get up. That's kind of, that's kind of the image I get from this. And, and you know, when, when ungodliness and unrighteousness permeates man, that's exactly what it's like. They're, they're trying to just cover it up, you know, rest all their weight on the truth and just, and just hide it and suppress it and hold it down. Squash it might be another way to do it. And this is one of the ways that they exhibit their ungodliness and unrighteousness. They suppress, they reject, they actively hold down the truth. You know, what's interesting as we get on into this passage, look down at verse 21 because Paul doesn't even give them the ability to say, oh, we didn't know. He, is, he just knows they know. And we're going to see why he knows that they know. He, he knows kind of the backstory of this message. But look at verse 21. Because he says, because although they knew God, see, they know God, they already know this. They're just holding down this truth. They're suppressing the truth. And so Paul assumes they know God. And what we're going to see as we continue to study this section is that not only are they impacting themselves, but they also like to impact others negatively. Misery truly loves company, as they say. And so we're going to see that they're impacting others negatively. And so we're going to start next week, um, really down in the gutter and we're just going to be in the gutter the next, well, two weeks we won't because we'd be at Christmas. I thought we'd take a break from Romans one uh, on Christmas day, but next week we're going to be in the gutter. And then when we get back, we'll, we'll get back in the gutter again. You know, Ben Franklin um, said, and you guys have heard this, an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of cure. And, you know, as I think of this, um, this whole concept of being unashamed of the gospel. You know, my encouragement to, the, to you today is, will you take the time to be established in the gospel? And what I mean by that is understand Paul's, why Paul is persuaded here from this passage. Why is Paul persuaded that this is the only way? And take, take time to establish yourself in the gospel. And then secondly, will you be persuaded by the word of God? as it relates to why you can be unashamed of the gospel. Can you walk out of here, have the same mindset toward the gospel that you do toward the sky? 
man, it's blue. It is what it is. That's the only way. Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God? Do you believe that it provides the righteousness needed to get to heaven? And do you believe that it prevents God's wrath from falling on you? Are you persuaded of that like Paul was persuaded? Well, if you're persuaded by that, you can be unashamed of the gospel as well. And you can pray along with Paul, who later in his life uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, you know, it's interesting. His prayer is not that he would be uh, not that he would not be ashamed of the gospel, but that God would give him boldness to speak it. He is unashamed. And you can be convinced of that, too. Let's pray. Lord, thanks uh, for your word. Uh, Most importantly, thank you for Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, who lives within us, who uh, desires uh, to have a personal uh, relationship with us, Lord, that he might be uh, the one with whom we're occupied with on a day by day, uh, moment by moment basis. Would you just uh, exalt him to the forefront of our mind and our thinking And may you keep them there as we face uh, unknown trials and circumstances this week, uh, as things come up that we weren't expecting. um, Keep Jesus at the front of our focus, at the front of our mind. And may we just find in him everything that's that's wonderful and lovely uh, about living life uh, with you. uh, This enjoyment, looking forward to living life with you for eternity. But Lord, just uh, allow us to be occupied with him. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.